Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Molkel. My pronouns are he and him, and I'm here with my magical co-hosts. I'm Cassidy. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm just a warrior who's trying to get by, just like all my other personas trying to get by. (laughs) Aren't we all just warriors trying to get by? Yeah. You know, I'm bonded to uh, (laughs) a Chad magician, but, uh, you know, she doesn't have a whole lot of time for me. Oh, that's so sad. I end up just kind of like training with other warriors while I'm waiting around for her. She kind of likes to sit at home a lot. It's hard to get her out. She's a Chad, but she doesn't go to the gym all the time? Uh, Well, she doesn't take me with her to the gym. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, while she's at the gym, you're practicing the art of Bushido, which makes you civilized. (laughs) True. At least you have that. I'm hoping that we're not offending any listeners with this bit. <laughs> the way of the swamp blade. Uh, Some mornings I have swamp blades. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least you practice your art with other warriors, and that's admirable. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. But who am I? I'm Jack Olander, he, him, or she, her. And I am, uh, I'm just, uh, you know, <laughs> what am I? I'm what a, are you? <laughs> naturally, I'm a wheel on the time goes round and round. Oh, oh round right. and round, round and round. You know, that sounds like an old nursery rhyme I've heard before. I think it's based on this show. Not the book it's based on, but actually based on this television program. Yeah, that's actually a real sore spot because uh, that song was originally about me, but they changed it enough to not have to pay me anything. Ooh, bummer. So, 10%. Uh, yeah, that's all they changed it by. Yeah. So, uh, you know, nursery rhymes, it's a bit of a sore spot for this wheel. I'm so sorry. Well, we'll try to divert the conversation away from things that might be a sore spot for you. And I'm going to do that right now, because today we're going to be talking about the Wheel of Time. Okay. Yay! (laughs) Is that a cousin of yours? Oh, yeah. Oh, nice. But you know what? Before we do that, I'd like to give a shout out to our patrons. Who are they, Jamie? (laughs) Well, they're the people who have gone to patreon.com slash swords and satire and signed up to kick us a couple gold coins every month to help us keep the show going. That sounds pretty cool. It's very cool. I like when they do that. It makes me happy. But I don't like when they don't do that. It makes me sad. (laughs) Oh, no. Well, if you want to make sure that Jack is not sad, you can also go to patreon.com slash swords and satire. Check out what we're offering for our monthly benefits and sign up for one of our tiers. But guys, why don't we talk about the Wheel of Time? Specifically, why don't we talk about episode six, The Flame of Tor Valen? Thank God, that's the one we watched. So we'll talk about that one. Yeah. It's also the next one in the series following episode five, which we talked about two weeks ago on the previous coverage of this program. That sounds right. So we are doing this show in chronological order. Six does come after five. And we're going to talk about this (laughs) episode. That's what they want you to think. (laughs) We're going to talk about this episode in two weeks from now. 
No, oh, we're so- talking about it right this second. Oh. So why don't we give the listeners a quick summary of what happened? So in this episode, Moraine faces the consequences of not really wanting to get into politics and people in Tarvalon, specifically her other sisters, being like, nah, you have to fucking participate in our politics. Well, as longtime listeners know, no matter how much some people want you to believe that you can stay out of politics, everything is political. Yeah, she's Moraine has been traveling for like two years, uh, trying to find the new Dragon Reborn. So she hasn't been involved in the politics of the White Tower. And uh, Leandrin is kind of bitter about that. It seems like from what we saw in the last episode, they used to be in a relationship together because she was being very intimate. We know they were in a relationship because Leandrin brushed Moraine's hair behind her ear longingly. And caressed her face. These are the signs that you are fucking. Yeah. Or that you have, at some point, recently or in the long distant past, been fucking. Right. It's a very intimate gesture. (laughs) And uh, Leandrin calls Moraine out when they're in a trial in front of the Flame of Tarvalon, also known as the Amerlin Seat. Also known as Suan. Yes. That is her given name. Leandrin basically tells on uh, Moraine to Mommy. Yeah. <laughs> she tattles. Then Mommy makes Moraine kneel in front of her and debase herself in front of the whole council. And uh, seems like Moraine's kind of into that. I mean, there's like this whole family angle with the Aes Sedai. And honestly, this episode really reminded me of family too. Yeah. But it turns out later... Why there was this whole interesting dynamic between the seat and Moraine? Turns out they fucking. That's right. And they're great keep- detail to add to the show. Yeah. They're they're keeping it a secret. So Moraine was acting in front of the council like she wouldn't give vital information to Suan or the Amerlin Siege. And she that's why she was all pissed off and basically punishing her. In front of everyone. Turns out, it was just a little bit of foreplay. Yeah. They, uh, when they're alone, Moraine tells Swain to kneel before her. <laughs> and she does. Yes. <laughs> then we cut away <laughs> after they've been fucking for a while. And, because uh, apparently this show is not bold enough to show cunnilingus on screen. I guess so. Cowards. <laughs> or accurate lesbian sex, because it's the same day by the time they finish. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so, Moraine is free with most of the information she has with Swain when they're alone. So it wasn't that she didn't trust her. It was that she didn't trust other people in the council. She doesn't trust her sisters. It's just so sad. Yeah. But she trusts mommy. (laughs) (laughs) Implicitly. Yeah. And explicitly. Yeah. With an emphasis on the explicit. (laughs) Well, our show always has the explicit tag, so we're good. Um, Are we the Amarlin seat? (laughs) Do we ever have the implicit tag? (laughs) (laughs) Always. Thank goodness. So, Moraine and (laughs) Suane. Is it Suane or Suane? 
Swain. Swain. Okay. Swan. <laughs> <laughs> Mo rain, so rain, jaw rain, and more lower gain. <laughs> more low gain. <laughs> I want to remake this show with an all Creole cast. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah, those bio people. <laughs> God damn it. So, Moraine is being open with Swain about the five... Very open. Oh, uh, you're talking about, about what's going on. Yeah. She's <laughs> revealing all of her secrets. I mean, just that <laughs> she was traveling with five potential dragons from the two rivers, and she tells them where she's keeping them, and they talk about needing to take them to the eye of the world to face the Dark One. Suwain and Moraine also discuss the fact that there was a prophecy about a many-headed dragon, implying that there may be more than one dragon in this cycle of the wheel, and they're trying to figure out why that might possibly be. Why his so- the wheel would have broken his soul into multiple parts, yeah. Which would make the Dragon Reborn less powerful individually but more powerful together like a thundercats nice <laughs> so moraine tells suwain that when she punishes her the next day in front of the council it should be exile because the leader of the blue the faction that moraine's part of wanted to keep her at tarvalon and she needs to be out with those five headed to the eye of the world that's right so even though they love each other, Swain and Moraine do, and they want to be together. Swain does exile her in front of the council, and they're both crying. I was crying. Everybody was crying. Swain makes Moraine promise on the dildo of promises. Yeah, that's true. Sorry, on the dildo of oaths. Yes. <laughs> and um, it was a very sad scene. It was a really sad scene. I was, like, sitting there, though, going, like, they're both openly crying. Isn't somebody in the crowd of Ace and I, they're gonna be like, these two are fucking! Hold on! Oh, the Ace and I have strong bonds to one another, so I think it was, I think they could let it slide. I guess that's fair. They're not reading the subtext. Right. And so, Moraine gets Lantu and um, their friend Loyal, the Ogre. Oh, I love Loyal. He's my boy. To gather all of the five Two River folk and meet at this gate. That they're, where they're going to take the ways, which is like an interdimensional space where they can travel more quickly to the eye of the world. They're trying to get there quickly before they've really identified who is the dragon reborn because the dark one is in a weakened state, which they found out through prophecies. And so they want to try to destroy him for good before he can come to his full power. And so Moraine opens the entrance to the ways they all walk in, except, uh-oh, Matt doesn't follow behind them. And it closes before he can, like, do anything except stand there looking like, yeah, fuck you guys. But Matt, a character who will definitely follow through this entire season and then continue on in the future seasons as the same actor. No, why aren't you going in? <laughs> Please, my beloved, consistent Matt with that face that is iconic and unchanging. <laughs> Come back. <laughs> All right. Well, that was a pretty concise summary. Why don't we head into the delve? Mm-hmm. 
Welcome to The Delve, where we venture deep into the scenes, themes, and lore of The Moraine Show. I mean, The Wheel of Time, Episode 6, The Flame of Tor Valen. Yes. So guys, at the beginning of this episode, after the flashback that introduces us to Sawain and how she is a very powerful mage, we see her in her current age as the head of the Aes and the Amberlin Seat, presiding over the judgment of Loghain, the false dragon. And they bring him in, and he is trying to be all cocky and talking mad shit and talking about how he murdered one of their sisters. But it's all bluster. The reality is, it seems like he is trying to get them to kill him so that he will not be tortured and experimented on for the rest of his life. And Suwain saw right through that. She was, even though you could see other members of the council getting all upset, she was very calm and called them out like, you can't goad me into killing you. We're going to keep you as an example and study you and experiment on you. And it was really fucked up. Yeah, it's a reminder, I think, that as much as we are starting to get more into the headspace of the Ace and I, we're starting to develop more attachment to some of these characters. We're going to know their feelings and the complexity of the different members of their order at their heart. They are a powerful organization who is not interested in sharing their power in any way, shape or form. And they will quash anybody who questions their authority. It's true. Um, Swain said to Loghain that. Oh no. (laughs) In front of Moraine. (laughs) That uh, they were keeping him as an example to other men who would dare to channel. That's right. And guys, you know, I just realized, I think that we had the rhyme scheme stuck in our head. The character is actually Suwan, not Suwain. But with so many characters with their names ending in Ain in this show, I'm not surprised that we made that mistake. Okay, it, the names in this show are very confusing. At least we knew who we were talking about. And certainly the listeners did too. No. But, but yeah, I mean, Suwan is like... Boy, we get to know her so well at the beginning of this episode, and and she feels like a really fleshed out character, even just on this first appearance of seeing her. And this throughout this whole episode, she runs a very complex gamut of like personalities, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. She has to be one way in front of the council, and it seems like when she took on the mantle of the Amerlin seat, she was kind of mentioning that she could have no bonds to anyone else and no family. And but we know that she adored her father growing up. Yeah. Because that's what the show, that what this episode begins with is this flashback to her as a child learning her magic. Right. So we know that she's a caring person, but when she took on the mantle, it seems like she wasn't allowed to have close bonds with others because she's supposed to be an impartial figurehead for Tarvalon and like an impartial leader and not have favorites. But she has at least one favorite. Yeah. At one point, Moraine says to um, Egwene and Nynaeve... <laughs> Nynaeve. <laughs> Nynaeve that, uh, you know, when Nynaeve says that Swan can wait uh, for them to have like a reunion... Moraine says, uh, 
the Amerlin seat waits only for one woman, and you are not her. Yeah. And by that point in the episode, we know who it is. <laughs> yeah, and that's when I'm imagining Egwene and Nenev being like, you two fucking, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But yeah, I mean, we get that side of Suan, where we see her as a child. She loves her father. She's learning her magic. We see her as the ruler the leader of the Aes Sedai, powerful and, like, kind of scary, right? Like, to the other Aes Sedai, they give so much fealty to her. They call her mother. They, like, respect her tremendously. Then we see this softer side of her in the bedroom with Moraine, and then we see kind of an interesting blend when Egwene and Nenev come to see her in her chambers, where she's very friendly towards them, and it's kind of like, oh, I'm not what you were expecting, right? But as soon as Nenev starts giving her a little bit of sass, that's when we see that authority come back out in Suan. Yeah, she wants to relate to them on their level, but if somebody's going to disrespect her, then I'll... I'll bets are off or whatever like she's gonna kind of pull rank <laughs> sure now that being said i have a lot of respect for nenev not having respect for authority yeah nenev has no reason to trust these people moraine has not been forthright with them this whole time they brought her out of her town to the best of nenev's knowledge moraine might as well have brought the trollocs to them she doesn't know that they were already coming. She's been through harrowing experiences. She's had this complicated relationship with Lan. She doesn't have a really strong reason to trust the Aes Sedai. Yeah. And I like that she refuses to give fealty to Suan, whereas Egwene is younger and not as used to the complexities of relations. She's like kind of excited to meet Suan and like, oh, you're this really powerful person. But Nenev isn't having any of that, and I respect that disrespect for authority. Egwene seems eager to prove herself and to be acknowledged by others. Definitely. I can understand that. But Nynaeve, don't forget, she was schooled for years by the previous wisdom of their village about how the Aes Sedai rejected her right. and were too elitist to let her in, and uh, Nynaeve kind of carries that Chip on her shoulder around. And Nenev also is more used to Who? an... Ag- <laughs> I think it's Nenev. It's Nynaeve. They say the character's name's different. It, at the beginning of the episode, Suwan called Moraine Moiraine. Okay. So even the actors get the names wrong. Nenev. <laughs> <laughs> so... Avoid Nenev. <laughs> So Nenev is also more used to an egalitarian community. She's not used to bowing down the power. She probably feels like the system of power that exists in the world outside of like communities like the Two Rivers is inherently corrupt or at least doesn't really concern itself with communities like this. So I just really liked that character detail where she is not ready to... Even though uh, Nenev is like a powerful spellcaster, we know, she's not willing to give her power over to the so-called spellcasting authority of this world. That's true. Um, I mean, she's kind of used to being the authority in her town, though. But Right, but she's also used to people being more equal. Somewhat. Their town definitely had a hierarchy to it. 
it wasn't completely egalitarian, but um, like nothing in this fantasy world is completely egalitarian. <laughs> well, that's for sure. And she was used to being um, like a medical or healing authority for her town. And so she doesn't want to have to bow down to some distant authority figure that she doesn't feel like she has any fealty to or should have any. And I think that also implies that like she is not super keen on this idea of becoming an Aes Sedai, even though some Aes Sedai clearly want her to be one. Yeah. They were saying that she's the most powerful channeler they've seen in like a thousand years. So of course they want to control her. Yeah. They want her to be part of their order. They don't want somebody like that out there in the world with not under their control. Especially since she is under consideration as being the dragon. Yes, also very relevant. That's true. And it's kind of like she was saying to Suan that, oh, what if I don't want to do this? I like this isn't in my plan for myself, basically. Right. And Suan was telling her, well, there are events bigger than any of us individually. And when the world is at stake. It doesn't really matter what you want. <laughs> and to her benefit, Siwan makes a strong point. Yeah. We are talking about potentially cataclysmic events, at least as far as their worldview sees it. Yeah. And if somebody has the power to stop an apocalypse, I think everybody around them is going to expect them to do something about it. Right. But you can't really force them to. Or if you do, you might end up creating a new apocalypse. If so, Nenev is that powerful, it means that her powers could probably also be used for destruction. True. Somehow they convinced her, though, because she did end up going with the group to that gateway. I think part of that, I'm guessing, is to do with her connection to the other four from the two rivers. I was thinking so, too. They're all going, so she wants to accompany them. They're all younger than her. She kind of feels... Like, she has some responsibility for their welfare, it seems like. Definitely. And especially Egwene. Egwene and Nenev have an especially strong bond because they've been training together. Or yeah. because Nenev has been training her. Uh, yeah, Egwene was supposed to be her apprentice. I really like the framing mechanism they're setting up so far. Yeah. Because in the scene in the shack where they shagged, right? The shag shack. Yes. The Love Shack is the copyright claim. And, <laughs> and we're talking about Moraine and Suan, right? Yes. Yeah. The two of them have a discussion about the dragon, and they reference the last one when they say that the dragon can either defeat the Dark One for good or side with the Dark One. And how, like Cass mentioned, there's the prophecy of a multi-headed dragon and the possibility that the dragon has been reincarnated into multiple people. I just think that's great. Me too. I think the idea that this, like, avatar of this powerful spirit keeps being over, like, born again and again, and the idea that every dragon has, like, some, to some degree, failed. Right. Has been corrupted in the past. But the last dragon partially succeeded by trapping the Dark One in this Eye of the World. It almost destroyed the world. But to save the world, you gotta break a few eggs. We're making the mother of all omelets here, Jack. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, 
I think it's interesting because in past episodes, they framed the dragon trying to destroy the wheel and the world as intentional. Right. But from this episode, it seems like that was just a byproduct of him trying to defeat the Dark One. Yeah, it's very complicated. It seems like nobody knows exactly what happened, but everybody has theories about because there's little folk stories that we've gotten up to this point and everyone has ideas and the ace and i probably feel like they have a fairly accurate idea about it it was three thousand years in their past yeah it seems like they say he broke the world and we learned that that was when he cut off the divine realm from their world so the gods can't access their world and so that was part of the breaking and it, we kind of thought it might have been his way of trying to cut off the Dark One and just cut off everything. And supposedly he tainted the weave to make men go mad, right? Right. But he probably, my guess, is the Dark One is trapped in the masculine weave and he's the one tainting uh, it, right? Interesting. He is the one tainting it for sure. Yeah, we know that positively. Yeah. But it's probably because the masculine weave is strong enough to hold him down. Even though we hear that he's the weakest he's ever been right now. But he's gaining power. That's yeah, right. he is. You know, I'll tell you what. Dark lords love to gain power and re-rise from, through resurrective principles that allow them to come in a new age and then take over a world and destroy it for their own uh, good. And yeah, by good, I mean bad. You know, I'm not quite sure... What you're talking about. Oh, yeah. But it seems like there might be a ring involved. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it's a wheel. Oh, right. Right, right, right. But I I do just love the idea of like, oh, yeah, dragons in the past, they've come close to succeeding, but they always fail and they turn at the end, right? But with like multiple dragons and teamwork and like actually standing for a lot of principles that the light depends upon or like preaches you can succeed i think that's cool it doesn't seem like the dragon's ever been reborn as multiple people before it's true now help me uh piece this out guys i've been told through our culture for all of my life that the best way to have power is to put it in one person's hand and give them ultimate power and control over all decision making right So this is how democracy dies. (laughs) (laughs) No, I like this idea that in the past, a single person could be corrupted with ultimate power. Therefore, maybe it's a better idea to spread the power out against multiple people. So if somebody does fall to bad vibes, that the good vibes can still have more power. Yeah. And besides that, there are men who can channel, but they probably try to keep that a secret because they know they'll be hunted. And uh, Loghain, like we were talking about in this episode, they're going to try to make an example of him to make male channelers even more afraid. That's right. Yeah, we mentioned the exact phrasing earlier, but Swain... Swain... Suan. Suan. She says, uh, an example for any men who dare to channel. That's right. right. Which is also relevant to the story where we're at, because Perrin is a man who can channel. And Egwene tells Moraine about that, and Moraine is just like, do not tell 
anybody else or Perrin is fucked. Yes. She was saying her sisters will definitely kill him. Yes. It's very clear that for the Aesodai, they really want Nenev or Egwene to be the dragon. Yes. And they want to preen them and condition them into their beliefs. And if it were Rand, Matt, or Perrin, they would definitely try to kill him. Right. But doesn't Moraine tell Swan, Suan, (laughs) that Perrin can channel? She shares that info, doesn't she? I think so, because that's when they're talking about how all five of them are possibly the dragon. They're in cahoots together because... That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what you call it? Suan was reminding Moraine that if anybody else finds out what the two of them are planning, then they'll both be... They didn't say gentled, stilled. She said stilled, which is probably a similar... Assuming it's a death-like stasis. Or death. I think it might just be death. Maybe. Maybe. They might cut them off from the source. Or yeah, is that the cutting off of the power? That's gentling someone. But that is for males. So they still women and they gentle men? Yeah, Yeah. it's like neutering and spaying. (laughs) Sorry, there was just something about gentle men. That had this... (laughs) 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 So... We don't know the full extent of their plan. We only know parts of it. Step one, find the dragon. (laughs) Step two, step three, save the world. Yes. (laughs) It's interesting, right? In this show, we're peeling back Moraine like an onion. Yeah. We get the outer stinky layer from the early episodes. And now we're getting the more interesting layers. She's been working. Juicy layers. Yeah. Yeah, That make you cry. (laughs) <laughs> it's true, it's just like an onion. She's been working with Suwon, their lovers, very closely connected. They have a plan that seems to be beneficent for the world. We're getting to know more about why Moraine is so secretive. A quality in her that we found maybe unappealing early on, we're starting to know why it was so important. Because if information about her plan got out, the other Aes Sedai would not go for it. And they would probably be trying to shut Moraine down, like, immediately. So secrecy really is the lifeline that she needs to save the world, question mark, I'm hoping? Yeah, and uh, they clearly can't trust everyone. I think it's especially the Reds and Leandrin in particular. They don't feel like they can trust them. The Reds definitely seem to be the Red Sheep of the Aes Sedai. <laughs> Yeah. They are the ones who are just scorched earth. There is a scene where Moraine is getting a nice luxury bath, like a spa day sort of thing. Like you do. And her boss comes in and they start having a conversation and her boss is like, you know, this is wacky. You defied the mother and uh, a green cloak was advocating for a red cloak. Things are screwy, right? (laughs) Right. The idea that anyone was advocating for a red cloak kind of seemed surprising to her. But especially a green cloak. It seems like they have some sort of a rivalry. Probably. And they have this sort of like color-based clannish mentality, which is why I thought it was really fitting that the person speaking of this had a Scottish accent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A nice detail. Yes. 
Well, you know, there's this interesting familial bond that the Aesidae are trying to create, right? Their head is called mother. They call each other sisters. They call themselves Suan's daughters. And there's a lot of sibling rivalry within these different factions. And even within the factions, we see not everybody agrees, right? Moraine is a blue but she doesn't necessarily... The Blues are like the spies of the Ace yeah. of I. But Moraine is like a spy outside of the spies. Like, she's even more removed from the power structure of the Blues. Some kind of super spy. Yeah. She's doing something that she can't tell anybody about, even her own faction. And I'm just realizing that it's weird. Oh, I was thinking it was weird... That Swan was trying to ask her in front of the council what she's been doing all this time and calling her out when it's their secret plan they have together. But then I was remembering that Leandrin is the one that was calling her out in front of everybody and it forced Suan to ask. Yes. Right. So Suan's good. She knows how to like read the room and keep the charade going. Yes. Now, I'll say their plan does conflict a little bit with the idea of like, Group power is greater than individual power because oh, there's absolutely. A, a shadow council of two yes. on the council. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. It's just like, oh, I can't let anyone else know. It's just my judgment and yours That's above right. everyone else's, right? Everyone else, they, they're not smart enough to take care of themselves. We have to deal with it. Whether they're okay with it or not. Yes. And it was Moraine who chose the exile because she didn't want to be tied to Tarvalon. She needed to be out in the field trying to save the world, basically. And so she couldn't be tied down. Right. And she didn't want to be exiled. But Suan put a little caveat in there when they were taking the oath. She was making her take the oath that she would stay away until the mother, that Suan, would call her back. So Suwan kind of built that in there just to like say like, don't worry, like I'll call you back at some point. Now that's a good detail, except for one important point that there are people amongst the Ace who do not want Suwan to be in power. If Suwan was usurped while Moraine is gone, the new leader might not necessarily be so quick to let Moraine back into the Ace and we know we can't trust Leandrin around all that. She's got designs for more power. That's why she was trying to oust Maureen and get her punished. And it was funny because after the first council meeting when Maureen was being called out and when Suan was having to say in front of the council she would think on her punishment, when they were leaving, Leandrin was looking all smug and... Like, acting like she got one over on Moraine. And we might at first, because that's before we see that Moraine and Suan are together. Right. And um, Moraine just has, like, a laugh on her face. You know, she's just kind of laughing to herself a little bit, because Leandrin has no idea that she wouldn't really be in trouble. I was joking while we were watching the episode, after we found out that Suwan and Moraine are lovers that she'd like go to the council next day and be like your punishment is 50 spankings admitted by me (laughs) and everybody in the audience chamber was like yeah that'll show Moraine (laughs) yeah 
Uh, it was pretty good. Uh, thinking back on that moment after we knew that Suan and Moraine were together and how Leandrin was all smug and thought that she had gotten, that she had outsmarted Moraine and really she just had no idea what was going on. Well, Leandrin had a couple moments like that this episode because there's another scene later where she's saying, oh, I know about the the people from the two rivers that you brought here and I could have you revealed. And Moraine is just like, I know that you go and visit a dude and I could tell the other reds and they would fucking murder him. Don't you ever say a fucking word about my people that I brought here or I will do that thing. And it was like pretty brutal. Yeah. Like she had that in her back pocket that whole time that Leandrin has been fucking with her, that she's been at the tower. And so she finally revealed that she had that info she knew, knew where the guy was. Yeah. Like, I feel like trying to outwit the spy master. Like, Leandrin's better bet would have just been to use violence. Because yeah. she's, that's her skill set. But Moraine's skill set is knowing everything about you and all your weaknesses. It's an inquisitor versus a skill, a spy master, right? Yeah. Or I something. can see why the inquisitor would think she could stand up. But she could not. Yeah, it was <laughs> She looked brutal. shocked and afraid, Leandrin did, that Moraine knew that information. And it, it was like a pretty good vindictive moment. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's also like Moraine isn't the one who's starting conflicts between the two of them. No. So Lorraine doesn't really have anything to worry about, but she doesn't know that. <laughs> yeah, Leandrin seems to be kind of like bitter and like she's getting revenge on Moraine because they're not in a relationship anymore. She seems like a jilted lover. Like when she was trying to gloat to Moraine when they came out of the council chambers, she looked at Lan at one point yes. and stared him down before she looked back at Moraine. And I think that she's very jealous of him. It seems like it. Yeah. And so she's kind of lashing out at Moraine in different petty ways. And uh, Moraine kind of put her in her place a bit. It also seems like Leandrin is letting the emotions get the better of her in a lot of aspects of her life. In addition to having this secret man in her life, right? Whatever nature that seems to be. Uh, and having this sort of jealous rivalry with Moraine. Yeah. She, in court, is getting accused of being emotionally compromised because of the way they handled the false dragon. Right. Yeah. The mother says, basically, like, you know, we have a set of rules, and this battlefield justice you guys enacted is not how we do things. Right. And Leandrin's like, but battlefield justice is, like, my whole thing. Right. And she let her emotion get the better of her in that chamber, and was basically like, oh, he killed one of ours, so I wasn't going to let him get away with it, right? Yeah. And everyone is like, you know, revenge is cringe, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know what's based? Self-defense. Right. She was going to be punished, too. We just didn't see what her punishment was going to be. I think her calling out Moraine was a way of deflection, so yeah. she would not get in trouble. She's like... I can throw her under the bus oh, and make her get punished instead of me. 100% that's what Leandrin was doing. And it worked, for what we can tell. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, Leandrin's not a major character, so we probably won't see her punishment. <laughs> I mean, she is a major character, but not like one of the ones that we're following. That's right. We're kind of on a bigger quest now that the folks have gone into the spooky uh-oh zone. And that Matt hasn't gone with them. Matt just saw the spooky uh-oh darkness zone, and he said, no, I don't like that. And they're like, oh, but I think you should give it a try. And he's like, no, I don't think I will. And they're like, wait, what? And then it closes. They That's were right. calling to him, and he just stood there watching it close. Yeah, it was It was definitely a moment. And it was kind of weird that none of them really noticed that he wasn't walking with them. Well, I mean, there was like a big gaping chasm where there had previously been open air between two arches. So I'd probably be pretty blown away, too, and not be necessarily paying attention to everybody in my group. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of wish she got really theatrical with it and was like, oh, guys, I got distracted here. I'm coming as fast as I can and just like running in place, making it look really (laughs) dramatic. It's like, he's coming, he's coming, hold it open longer. He's just like, I can't make it. Oh, sorry, guys, my bad. But you know what? I think it's okay. We lost a Matt, but we have gained a Loyal. That's right. That's true. And Loyal he's traveling rules. with them. Yeah. So we have a fellowship of the wheel. Yes. Of seven fellows. Yes. Maybe more at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where's old Thom? I was I was hoping that Thom was going to show up. Like when the eight of them were out there, they're going to look around and be like, "Well, normally you send nine people on an adventure, and then Thom would show up and be like, "Hey guys, I'm the Gleeman. Remember me?" I think he kind of sacrificed himself to to fade to get let them get away. Nah, I think we're going to be hearing more from that guy. It's Matt that I'm worried about. <laughs> All right, guys. So we've been pretty thorough with the big stuff for this episode. Why don't we head into our final thoughts? All right, guys, so we've watched episode six of The Wheel of Time now. We were a little shaky on this show early. Now I feel like we're getting some really compelling stuff. I almost wish the series had started with more of this. Yeah. This, like, deeper character building. It was interesting to get to know the characters. I mean, some of the characters had good development from the beginning, but we had issues with Moraine and stuff and the way she was portrayed. Is it more satisfying that we're getting her story now, or do you wish... That we had known more about her in the beginning. Well, in this episode, she was saying that she didn't trust anybody from the Two Rivers completely because any of them could have been the dragon and she didn't know how far along that development had gone. So that's why she was being so closed-mouthed with them and um, secretive. So I kind of believe that. It just, like, it didn't make for very compelling storytelling like she didn't have some other way of convincing them to go with her except like come with me if you want to live and also you don't want to get everybody you love killed like that's compelling in the moment but the longer you spend with somebody the more you're going to want to know about it and she didn't have any kind of version of the story ready that she could tell them that was satisfying to them and maybe that's just like a flaw in the character i don't know you also got to remember the pacing of those first few episodes was just horrible. The show opens on Moraine and it's just like the worst thing. 
<laughs> Ouch. That's right. I remember. It's like a Gatling gun of information. It's just being fired at your head, point blank range. I mean, we're a fantasy movie review show. We, we're used to getting all the exposition up front. It was exceptionally bad. <laughs> but Moraine, I really liked getting a lot more of her this episode. They've flushed her out this and maybe the last one or two episodes. Yeah. I'm pleased with it. How, uh, however, this episode, I feel, was a little light on the main cast, like on Definitely. the on the dragons. Honestly, I was okay with it. I liked getting more of the other characters in the world and everything. I agree. Uh, it's good because uh, some characters in the main cast are underdeveloped, so why would you want more time with them? <laughs> but uh, And some of them we may not see again. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, I guess it is a little foolish assuming that more time with Rand would flush him out. Oh, uh, I think <laughs> Rand is just, you know, if Moraine is an onion, then I think Rand is like a basketball. Yes. Just one layer and everything in the middle is air. Yes. But, uh, again, the actor makes him somewhat compelling. He does. Because he, the actor is good. Yeah, very charming actor. It's not your fault. <laughs> <laughs> we love you. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I still think Rand, you know, we've gotten a complex little story with him. His relationship with Egwene, his kind of complex feelings about letting her go, despite loving her and like having this vision of a future they could have had together. He's like a little resistant to not getting it, which is a bummer. But, I mean, also maybe understandable if you really care about somebody. Yeah. But, like, he's really been a committed friend to the other members of his town people, his town fellowship. Like, he's committed to Matt. He's really, like, worried about Matt through this thing with the dagger where Matt was corrupted by the dark spirit inside of the dagger. And he, like, is willing to draw a sword on Moraine and land to defend Matt. Like, a fight that he will for sure lose. And yes. he knows he will for sure lose it. And that's how committed he is to defending his friend. Yeah. I want to talk about Lan real quick. Because there's a point in the episode where Moraine is kind of getting ready to, you know, quote-unquote, turn in before bed, right? Uh -huh. And Lan comes in and is like, Hey, Moraine, how's it going? And she's like, uh... Kind of deflecting his questions and just everything he's trying to talk with her about. Well, because he said she suppressed their bond, and you could tell. Right, exactly. <laughs> she doesn't want Lan to nut when she's uh, busy with <laughs> Suan. Yes, yeah. good point. But it was interesting because we finally got to hear a bit more about the bond between Warders and Aes Sedai, which we've heard a lot about. Yeah. But we didn't really... We just thought it was a close emotional connection, and it is, but that's part of a component for, like, a spell, which allows them to know where each other are, it seems like. And yes. what they're feeling. And what they're feeling. So there's a literal, like, magical tether between them. Yeah. And she can apparently dampen that, and he was like, I couldn't tell where you were. Yeah. He basically cuts right through her deceptions and deflections. Is like, oh, you're going to go hang out with her, aren't you? Right? And she's like, uh, yeah, you got me. Yeah. So that means Lan knows about the relationship, too. Yeah. Which Moraine keeps secret from everybody. 
So the fact that she has entrusted Lan with that information is telling of their relationship, too. She would have to because of their bond, because he could feel what she was feeling. Yes. But she can dampen it. But she trust. You're right, though, because she does trust him enough to let him, like, fully know. Right. I don't think you're typically supposed to dampen your bond with your ward. No, it doesn't seem like it. And it's dangerous for multiple reasons, too, right? If the ward is somebody who's kind of your lifeline if you're being threatened, the only time you would dampen that bond is if you were doing something where you knew you were safe. So one thing I find interesting is it kind of felt strangely parental, the interaction, where Lan was kind of like a dad figure. (laughs) Where he came in and was just like, where have you been, young lady? Yeah. Like, are you getting ready for bed? And she's like, basically hiding that she's going to sneak out and hook up with somebody. No, he knows. Yeah. Well, he, he says to be back before morning. He knows, but she's trying to hide it from him. Yeah. It just so happens that he knows. He's like, uh, yeah, try to be back before morning. And she smiles like she was caught in doing something mischievous, right? Yeah. And... Uh, She's like, is that an order? He's like, did it sound like a suggestion, <laughs> right? Well, because he kind of has to cover for her. And he yeah. said he would t- keep watch outside of her door the whole night so she yeah. could go be with Swan. So so Lan's a good, uh, I was going to say co-pilot, but I mean just, wingman. I think he's yes. basically just like, don't make me stand out here forever. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And like, don't make me have to tell anybody anything that will... Like, create a new layer of deception. Yeah. That's right. Also, I'm not sure. Like, I know warders in their Ace have sex. But I'm not sure Moraine is actually into Lan. I think hmm. she might be a lesbian. Because I, I haven't seen her actually portray, like, attraction to Lan. It's true. They've shown a real intimate closeness and a tight bond. But they haven't shown an overt sexual attraction to one another like we've seen between the other Aes Sedai and their warders. Yes. That's fair. I think they probably do have sex. Probably. But I don't know if it's... I, I think it. Part of me wonders if it's more of a utilitarian process than a, like a deeply emotional one. That's impossible for them because of their bond. Or is it ultra possible? If you have sex with your warder, is it kind of just like masturbation? It could just be a convenience thing, right? Better than not having a warder. (laughs) She did tell him he felt like home one time. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, it's true. Well, I feel like in order to set up the bond, you have to feel that way. Yeah. They may have a deeply connected relationship and just their way of expressing it is less touchy-feely intimate and more like... Literally watching each other's back for protecting your lives intimate. That makes makes sense. And they're used to having to stay on their guard all the time because they've been on the road for two years doing some crazy shit. Yeah. Right. I'm also not sure Lan has shown any sexual interest in other characters yet. He said he's had sex with men and with women. All warders do. Mm Yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't mean he, like, likes to do that. Well, it doesn't seem like he doesn't, but he wasn't, like, psyched about it or anything. So you think maybe Lan is ace? Yeah, just, like, it just comes with the job. (laughs) 
Maybe. Ace working for a lesbian. It could ex- it could happen. Yeah. I mean, the sexual politics of this world are as fascinating as those in our own. Yeah. It's what I seem to have observed so far, whether or not it's accurate. What I like is that this world is a bit more sex positive. Yeah. There's kind of an openness about these things, and nobody's, like, giving Alana side-eye for having, like, her two warders and everything. Poly Yeah. Yeah, it's good. And nobody's like pressuring Lan and being like, oh, what? You don't like to bone down or whatever? Like, you just, sexuality is just a thing that gets to exist however you want it. And that's great. That's why it was so weird that a green was um, standing up for a red in the council meeting because the red cloaks hate men. Don't have warders. And don't have warders. And the green faction are the ones that can be poly and have multiple warders and are more open about that kind of stuff. So it's interesting how the sexual politics are codified into your allegiances to some extent. Yeah. In the Aesodai. Yeah. That is a fascinating detail that I would love to explore more at some point. Mm-hmm. The red cloaks are not chill. They have none. No. But they, I mean, we know that Leandrin has a probably sexual partner that she visits. Right. And that is a man. Right. That too. Which is fascinating because people accuse her of hating men. And it's implied it's a sexual partner, but we don't quite know yet. But anyway, that's interesting. I'm looking forward to if we hear more about that. Yeah. But another thing I found interesting, when we see the council of the High Ace Adai, right? We noticed that there were the brown cloaks and the white cloaks, right? Right. And the white cloaks are there, and the mother is like, oh, the way of the, or like, follow the light, right? Right. I'm like, oh, this is sounding really close to the white cloaks led by child... Valda. Valda, because they have white cloaks and worship the light. I'm like, maybe they branched off from the Ace Eye. Could happen. Well, I think when people are talking about the light, they kind of use it the way we might say, like, oh, my God. Yes. Oh, the light. Because Moraine says something about light, you haven't changed your taste in beers. Like, we might say, like, God, you haven't changed your taste in beer. Yes. Yeah. Your taste in beer, worth invoking the divine over. Yes. (laughs) Well, I think her implication was that it was not. That, like, her taste in beer was bad. Uh, I see. (laughs) Satan, you're ordering that beer again? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, (laughs) it's just interesting that the white cloaks are people who hate the Aesidae, but there are also white cloaks within the Aesidae. Well, a white faction of Aesidae, yeah. Yeah. White clothed. So that I I would be shocked if there isn't some correlation there. It's interesting to me that we haven't really seen the whites and the browns, I don't think, up to this point. I wonder if maybe some of them are scholars who mostly stay around. Just yeah. something about saying the whites and the browns. <laughs> Just <laughs> Hey, I didn't color code this show, okay? Somebody else did that for me. Yes. Somebody had a brown a white cloak until it turned brown. <laughs> Oh, no! (laughs) I don't even know where that goes with the troubling metaphor that we're establishing here. We are the Dirt Sisters. (laughs) But yeah, I'm guessing at least one of them is probably like the intellectual wing. Probably. Like the the studious librarians. Historians. 
they could understand the sacred scrolls of Rick and Morty because they are the intellectual wing of the Aesodon. <laughs> yes, of oh, course. Boy. The prophets Rick and Morty. Yes. Yes. Your bond with the weave must be at least 500 points. Oh, boy. <laughs> All right, well... I think that'll probably do for this discussion. <laughs> Does anyone else want to add anything? No, I think I'm good. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that'll probably do it for us here on another episode of Satire TV. But if you enjoyed the episode, maybe give us a follow on social media at Swords and Satire on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you do that, why, you can catch up with our memes, know what we're watching next, and... Get in touch with us and let us know what you think about the shows and movies we talk about. And like we said before, if you have a few extra bucks each month, or even just two, you could head over to patreon.com slash swords and satire and become a patron of the show. Uh, we would really appreciate your support. And you also get other cool bonus art. So you should go check out what that's all about. That's right. But if you don't have that couple extra bucks to slide the way of your favorite podcasters, another wonderful way you can support the show is by sharing it with your friends and family. Because what better way is there to enjoy wonderful fantasy and wonderful fantasy podcasts than to experience it with the people you care about the most? That's right. And next week, you're going to be hearing our new music that we got for our show, a new theme song. Ooh, tease them. <laughs> oh, change. It's very epic. I think for the first time you hear it, we'll let you hear more of the song at once, just to get the full effect. <laughs> All right, well, what is the movie we're going to be talking about in that episode? I mean, people are going to be so excited about the new theme song, I worry that it's going to override the movie Maybe we need to discuss something really fucking epic. I think we should. Probably RRR. The new pirate film? <laughs> oh, you mean the Bollywood action fantasy? That's the one. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> well, until then, Hail Crom! Hail Crom.